0: Hello and welcome to the Russian Football News Podcast. We welcome you back to this fortnightly podcast on Russian football, where we try and give you the insight into the beautiful game over in the motherland. So as per usual, I'm joined by my two regular guests. We've got the website editor. We've got Toka Thelade. Hey, Thomas, how are you? Yeah, I'm all right. Thank you. And you're in Moscow now, right?
1: At Mid am.
0: Perfect. And we've got Andrew from far flung Siberia. Andrew Flint.
1: Hello, guys. Good to be back. Good stuff. Okay,
0: well, today's topics are actually quite interesting because they're not really focused on the Premier League. There's a couple of off pitch things and various other scandals, I guess you'd call them, which are hardly rare in Russian football. So, first of all, we'll go through the Russian presidential, uh, the football presidential elections. So,. Vitaly Mutko has once again been elected as the head of the Russian Football Union. After, well, it was a pretty predictable result, really, wasn't it, Andrew?
1: Well, yeah, I, I wasn't surprised to see him see him win. Um, I mean, the, the thing about Vitaly Mutko is he's a very he's a very slick operator, and whatever anybody thinks of his the direction he takes Russian football in, um, unfortunately, if you're going to stay in your role and have any influence, you've got to be a good well, politician, basically, you've got to be a good a good worker off the off the pitch. And he's known to have a good relationship with um, with Vladimir Putin. And um, I don't really expect a great deal of change now since he's been re-elected. not just because he's still there in person, but in terms of, you know, what the you know, what the rulings are going to be, whether the foreigner restrictions uh, will change. I mean, he, he tends to toe the line with what Putin says. Um, that's that's how I see him at least. Um, I mean, I, I find it all a little bit unsavoury that you know, some one guy is allowed to be in charge of the RFU and the World Cup bid and be Sport Minister all at once. Um, I would prefer to see um, less of a direct connection, in um, certainly through one person, um, because I think there could be a conflict of interest. You know, there's the image of the country, which is the priority for the World Cup, of course. And Mutko is, um, well, his entire reputation hangs on that, basically. Um, whereas the actual, the quality of Russian football is something that fans have complained about for a while. and But I, unfortunately, I think it needs a shakeup. And I don't think Mutko is likely to bring that about in the short term. But uh, it's not a surprise that Mutko has been brought in, but... Um, yeah, we'll we'll see if he's bold enough to, to make any any changes, but I, I don't see it happening in the short term, at least.
0: Well, Andrew, you've actually thrown quite a few questions there, which I'm going to ask Toker. Into, well, I'm going to ask him one, was that Andrew mentions there about sort of the one man running everything. Is that, I mean, this is, again, football connecting to society. Is that a thing that sort of hangs over from Russian society, would you say, Toker, that it's actually kind of necessary for Russian football? To have this one man controlling. Otherwise, if you have so many different factions, nothing will ever get done. Particularly with the World Cup in a couple of years.
2: Mm, that's a good question. I wouldn't say it was, it's it's a necessity. I mean, I don't think that they should, in this case, aim at having one guy controlling everything. But when that said, I think Mutku was both the safe the safe choice for this. But I think it was also the right choice in in lack of better options, actually. I mean, I did find all Gaziev's proposals interesting and his his like revolution, but I, I really can't see him moving Russian football forward. Mutko seems to me like he's a man who, who can get things done, but but he's also pragmatic enough to realize that Russian football has some problems, and he'll try to fix at least some of them. And yeah, he's he's not the optimal candidate and not the, the best man for the job, but. I think he was the best of the of the candidates we had this time. He's he's also a man who has good relations with the club and uh, with the different clubs and and so on. And I think it's it it maybe it doesn't give reason to be optimistic on Russian football's behalf, but but at least it doesn't give us reason to worry too much. Uh, at so yeah, we have that going for, for us, which is, is nice, I suppose.
0: And Andrew the other thing I was going to say was you said that he was quite a slick operator on the international scene but given the Olympics and the Paralympics and the doping scandal would you say his reputation has actually been tarnished and therefore you said the vision of Russia for the World Cup is so important with Mukko being the top of that does that actually put a bit of a tarnish on it
1: well it certainly will do in some people's eyes in the Western media I'm sure Um but, I mean, look, if we're going to be brutally honest, there aren't many people that would not be tired by the fairly lazy reporting and journalism I see in a lot of places in that someone is Russian, therefore they automatically are corrupt. I mean, we, we know full well a lot of people are off the pitch and, um, you know, the financing of clubs has been a, an issue since the dawn of time in Russia. But, um, yeah, I mean, in terms of Mutko's reputation when it comes around to the World Cup, the reason I say I think he's a, a slick operator is that Yes, he has, um, he has got his detractors that he's got to present a better face to, but I think he will do. I think he's aware enough of the realities of the situation. He won't be so blunt as to say, well, look, this is how I'm going to do it and everybody else can just stuff it. He'll realise that the World Cup is such a big stage that he will at least have to make the right noises, even if he doesn't long-term back up um, what he says he's going to do. For example, I see him being, um, if not forced into a corner, at least in, obliged to comment on, you know, the age-old discussions of of racism and, and homophobia in in Russia. And he will make the right noises for that. Um, I think the World Cup we're going to see the most effect in the years afterwards, not in time for it. Um, I think the the influx of attention. Um, will be a wake-up call to a lot of people. and uh, But I, I think Mooko will be sort of politically well-coped, um, well-prepared to deal with it. So um, certainly in the short term. Uh, and I think, in a way, that's, that's what we need. So, um, yeah, I mean, his reputation is not great internationally, but I think he will make every effort to, to fix at least his image, uh, if not the actual reality. But, yeah, it, we'll, we'll see.
0: So... Toko, what I was thinking as well was that moving away from the World Cup we've seen quite a lot of stagnation in Russian football. We can just really expect that to continue in domestic football, would you say, with Mukko? Or do you think, well, unlike Andrew, I'd say, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Andrew, but that he doesn't have have the, the power to push those reforms through which are badly needed.
2: Um, I'm not sure I agree with that. I mean, Mutko is obviously a very powerful man, both in, in Russian football, but also in European and world football, where he has a lot of uh, influential contacts at both FIFA and UEFA and has some, some, some um, seats around in, the, in various committees and stuff like that. But of course, he'll, he'll never go through with anything that isn't coming from the uh, top of, of, of Russian society, like from Putin and, and, and the people very close to him. So, no, I don't expect any big changes, as I said earlier, in within the next two years. I think we have to go past the World Cup before we can see, for example, the, the foreigner limit being cancelled, because it's simply too risky to do anything that major right now. And also, I would expect Mutko to to leave the seat at latest after the World Cup, when there's no really any need for him anymore. And by that time, I think maybe then we can start to see some real big changes and some some important things happen, but right now football is, is still quite important, and Russia simply can't afford any any big mistakes, and that's why they need to keep everything in control, and keep corruption at a low, and all these things.
0: So, Andrew, I'm thinking from your perspective as well, watching your lower league side locally, what what difference does Mukko make to the, the likes of Tumen and places like that, if any?
1: I mean, Tumen rely. Um, entirely on state funding, and that was cut in half about a season or two seasons ago. Um, and I know that's a similar story across the FNL. Um and and muko has stressed the, and he's a big backer of the system of state funding of clubs. So uh, I guess in a way that means it, it shouldn't be disastrous for Tuchuman. I mean, it, I mean at least some income is likely to to remain there. Um, I personally, I, I mean, on this the whole state funding of, of lower league clubs, I think it's a very risky business because um, in theory, it should be a more solid form of income, of revenue. But we've seen how, well, how budgets change very quickly and usually they drop. Um, and, you know, if you look at what a city needs, the, you know, the football club doesn't come out particularly high in many cases, um, certainly nothing too much. Um, I mean, in, in my city, for example, there's a huge amount of spending that goes on, on the roads and they often say we have the best roads in Russia, um, but the football team is certainly not the best football team in Russia, so um, Muko staying on, I think it's it's, it's not going to change anything, but that's not a bad thing because it should at least guarantee the state funding continues. Um, I mean, it's, it's a shame there isn't a rich sugar daddy who can come into Western Siberia, but um, for some strange reason, there isn't the marketability here that some people <laughs> would like. Um, the thing is, Andrew... Go on, Tucker, go on.
2: Yeah, it's very important to remember for, for all the smaller clubs, like Tumen, for example, it's very important to have good relations with Mutko because once they run out of money, which we all know happens all the time, he's the guy they call to to get money. That's also why we saw, for example, um, Igor Efremov, who, who is the head of the of the FNL... He backed out of the race to become president of the Russian Football Union and gave his votes to, uh, to Mutko. And the same did uh, Priyatkin, the president of the Russian Premier League, because they know how important it is to, to have good ties with mm. him. None of, none of them supported Gazaev even though maybe he had the ideas needed. But they stay close to Mutko because he's the, he's the guy the clubs need. He's the guy they call, hey, we, we need money to fill out our budget. And yeah, it, it, I don't think you should underestimate how important it is to be friends with him when you are a small club who, who relies on funding from especially from the state, then you you really need to be on his good side because otherwise you go bankrupt.
0: So with Gazaev, I mean Andrew, we've seemed to suggest in this build up that even though Gazayev had the better ideas, Muko seems to have got it. Is this mm. literally people not lining each other's pockets but making sure they're in with the right crowd rather than actually thinking about the future of Russian football?
1: And uh, keeping much so. their
0: own personal interests.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think very much so, um, and much. So I don't like it um, in a, on, a, on a moral level. I guess it's it's you've got to be realistic if you want to survive. You have to know and be friendly with and uh, have a good relationship with the right people. So, uh, painful as it is, I think it is the most sensible decision um, to do that. And like Toka says, it's it's what a lot of clubs just have to do if they want to. Be prepared for the worst, basically. Um, so, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, Valeri Gazayev's ideas. I'm, I personally, am a big fan of them. I think he has certainly got the best long-term interests of clubs at heart. And the problem is, people are just too nervous to make that big jump to uh, a totally new direction of leadership. And they, because it would be such big changes that he's suggesting. Um, the, when I, when I looked into his um, his suggestions in detail a few months ago, he was suggesting that there would be about half of the, cut the number of professional clubs in half. Uh, I mean, we've seen how the at the bottom end of the food chain, um, well, not even just the bottom of the food chain, but all through the league system, clubs routinely run into financial problems and some even go out of business. The only thing um, I would say on that,
0: Andrew, very quickly,
1: is to say to cut
0: the number of professional clubs in half, it actually takes out a lot of the most important people in the game, which is the fans, and it leaves them without a team. I mean, it's all very good on the financial side of things, but if these clubs were better run, then a lot of these fans wouldn't have to suffer.
1: Well, I mean, I know what you mean about the fans, but I, I'm not saying, you know, just cut it may stop the clubs from existing, but just simply, the I mean, the third division, two um, men's second team playing in the third division, regional league, and it's very much more closely uh, regionalised. The the second division at the moment. And um, if you are in the Moscow region, your distances to travel are not very far, and that's manageable. That's that you can cope with that. But when you get out to the ural Povolzhia, or East Division, um, Chimen played in the Urals, um region, and it's just the the distances are bigger than any other country in the world. It's, I mean, that's just in a regional league. And um, it's just not it's not financially viable. Um, I would suggest that instead of trying to support so many professional clubs that you know more funding could be provided for you know um, facilities for amateur clubs and for you know running of the professional clubs um you know to at least ensure that you know the lower lower league clubs would have what they need to to actually perform but they've got to I don't know they've got to find a way to find the money that's not going to happen but state funding should still be given to the clubs to keep them running but um It just—it isn't viable um, to to have so many clubs going, and I mean, it it would take—it would be a painful few years of transition. Um, A lot of, like you say, a lot of fans would initially um, oppose this, I'm sure, Uh, but they—they just have to—they have to be realistic and think. Well, look, at least if we have a team, it's better than seeing the team go out of business altogether, like we've seen with you know some bigger clubs um, in the past. So. I think there's just a part of me that wants to see a shake-up always for the sake of a shake-up. But I do really think Gazaev has the right ideas. So perhaps, like Toka suggested earlier, after the World Cup we might see a change, uh, whether that specifically is Gazaev coming in for Muko or not, I don't know. But I think that's probably when we'd like to see any change, if at all.
0: I mean, Toka, going back to that World Cup that Andrew mentions, do you feel that if it weren't for the World Cup in a couple of years' time, Muko wouldn't have won this? And it's just about stability building up to that, huge occasion
2: No I'm not sure I think it's important to remember that Gassayev also has an incredibly dirty um, past for example when I mean we all remember him as being a fantastic coach winning the UEFA Cup with CSK what is that 11, 11 years ago but but after that he, he had some strange years for example he went back to Alanya to be president I mean that's a, a club with a glorious past he elected his son as head coach Earned tons of money on selling players, and then the club went bankrupt. And now he's, yeah, now he's running around trying to become president. And, and sure as Andrew said, he has some interesting ideas. I don't think there's any, any doubt about that. But he has also had a lot of stories following him with corruption. And I mean, I spoke with Alan earlier today, um, who wrote an excellent piece on the, on the website a couple of days ago about the election. And yeah, he told me some stories. And of course have also tried to, to purchase tons of votes for this election. I mean, apparently money shifted hands all over all over the place. And yeah, I'm, 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 I see Gazaev as sort of an opportunist. He He's trying to be where the money are. And right now, you can make tons of money by being president of the Russian Football Union. And he would be, even though he has all these achievements as a coach, maybe I'd be a bit... Um, Suspicious of of him running the whole thing because he he has done some shady stuff in the in the in the past years.
0: Also, didn't uh, Alanya go bust under his? Uh, well, not go bust, have a lot of troubles under there, his uh, presidency.
2: Exactly, they went bankrupt. Yeah,
0: I mean that that's not great. If you're gonna <clears throat> excuse me, if you're going to uh, be running a big football organization that.
2: Re- no, <laughs> and that, and that's uh, that's why Mutko also said that. I mean, he leaves uh, burnt earth behind him. I mean, there's there's nothing left after he has he has been <laughs> after he went to Alanya. There's nothing today, and that's that's the club that won the championship in '95. So, it's the first club to to beat Spartak Moscow in, in Russia. So that's a, I mean, it's a significant club. It's not just some random club.
0: No, of course, had that success in '95. Um, Andrew, would you pretty much go along with that then? The, I mean, the thing is, all these officials have a bit of dirt on them, don't they? Really, if you think about it.
1: Yeah, that that was the only thing I was going to add to what Toke said. I I do, I do agree with what he says. Um, I think the fact that he's well either been too open or not smart enough about his uh, covering up his dealings. I mean, because look, let's let's be quite honest. Do we really think Muko has never, you know, bribed somebody or been? Swayed for political reasons rather than the good of the game. I mean, of course, he will have done. But then again, you know, we, we nobody is nobody is um, completely clean in this game. Therefore, I know it's going to sound awful, but I would almost look past the fact that his past is not a hundred percent ideal, as long as he has some ideas that at least keep the good of the game at the forefront. Um yeah, I. I, I don't know. I, I personally, I'd be willing to take that gamble on because um, I've I don't think there's anybody at the RFU who is not interested in, at least in some way, lining their own pockets. We've seen how dreadful their contract negotiations have been. We saw the details of Capello's contract last summer, um, where he was allowed to... There was a, some clause where he was allowed to unilaterally um, uh, disband, dis, disintegrate the agreement uh, at any stage um, and still be paid up for the whole... Um, for the whole contract, which is just such a weak bargaining position from the RFU, but they they will have made some money out of it somehow. I don't know how, but they will have done. Um, so I don't know. I'm keeping my fingers crossed that uh, Mucko will do at least keep things steady, and then somebody else will come in um, at the next opportunity.
0: Just very finally on this topic, I just thought of an interesting sort of thing in my head that actually. The corrupt past of any candidate is actually a good thing because you have to deal with the corrupt nature of Russian football, and therefore, if you have experience of it, you know how to wipe it out. Whereas if you come in with a completely clean slate, you have no idea what's going on.
2: No, you can say that we saw, for example, with Tolskij uh, a couple of years ago, who also tried to. Okay, now we have to clean it all up, and everybody went against him when he tried to sort of change the culture. Of course, you can say that's it, it, it's maybe it's an advantage that's dealing with these things, but ultimately, you know, of course you should go for people who are not corrupt or and if that's impossible, the people who are the least corrupt. But of course, you can also hope that maybe Kasaif has been so corrupt in his past that he has earned enough, enough money now, so he don't need to earn any more and now he can just be idealistic, but I think maybe that's a bit too optimistic.
0: That is... That is the optimistic statement of the century. I'm just gonna <laughs> Anyway, like like Tiger mentioned earlier, Alan Moore has written a fan... I mean, it's actually pre-election, but you can go through all the candidates on Alan's piece on the Russian Football News website and see what sort of their plans were. And actually, Alan's prediction, which of course came true with Mukko becoming president, well, continuing his presidency. So now we're going to move on to the, the Russian Cup, which is... Quite frankly, a ridiculous competition. The round of 32, the Russian Premier League clubs come into the opposition. It's <coughs> Excuse me, come into the competition, but they are automatically drawn away. So, of course, this means a lot of weakened teams because we saw Spartak have to go to pretty much right next to Vladivostok in Khabarovsk. And, of course, they field a the weakened team, lose the match. Andrew, what is to be done?
1: Well, it cannot stay the same. That's the fairly obvious statement um, to start with. I mean, it's it's just such a it's such a lazy effort to make you know give a, a level playing field in the Russian Cup to make all the top flight teams all play away in the same round, and it the, the round always lies just before a European weekend uh, midweek um, set of fixtures. And so for the top clubs, you know, like we've seen Rostov, for example. I mean, I think Toker even went to the game and um, played Dynamo Moscow um, away. They've got PSV Eindhoven, their first home game in the Champions League ever. Um, so what on earth do you think they're going to do? Um, they're not going to send their strongest side. They didn't. And they were hammered 4-0 by, um, by, by Dinamo. Now, the thing is, for me, is it's just so it's such a false way of trying to level the playing field. Some lower league clubs do win. But then how valid is their victory? You know, it's, it's, it's just taking all the worth out of it. Um, I mean, I don't think you have to be, you know, a, a football romantic to go along with this idea. I think it really does make a difference. Um, I mean, I, um, I've, I've been to a couple of Russian Cup games as a lower league fan of Chumen when Chumen were a third-tier side. Um, I, I remember Alania. no, in fact, the very first one, was against a FNAL side against um, I saw Juan Lescano playing for Habdoc and that felt like a real occasion and I really enjoyed that. but when it got to the next round we played Alania um, their last season in the Premier League. Um, and Alania being a lower level Premier League club at the time they did send a good team and it was a, again it was a great occasion. Um, but for the middle to upper teams who send the weekend sides, you know what what's the point of it? Um, the, it's it's not only the draw though. What I really really gets my back up is the kickoff times. We saw some some kickoffs midweek at I think four o'clock, um, three o'clock even. Two o'clock um, was one. Was two o'clock? Two o'clock was the earliest. I mean, just who on earth decides two o'clock? If you're having it on that day, at least have it on the in the evening. Um, it's it's a two fingers up to the fans as well, as far as I can see. So. No, you're absolutely right. It's a it's an absolute joke of a competition, um, and a lot needs to be done to change it.
0: So, Togo, we've spoken a lot about this in the past about splitting the the Russian the FNL particularly due to the travel times. Could you perhaps do the same with the Russian Cup, split it d- down the down the middle? I know it's a, a bit ridiculous with the country the size of Russia because you'd have to decide where that line is, but have sort of an Eastern and a Western Conference, and then the winner the winners of those conferences. Go to the uh, go to the final, a bit like the um, NFL in America.
2: I mean, it, it would be nice for the for the teams, wouldn't it? But but would it be fair? I mean, then we would have one part with all the Moscow teams: Saint Petersburg, uh, Rubin Kazan, maybe even Krasnodar, and then another part with maybe Ural as the only Premier League side, Amkar. Okay, okay. I mean, ha-
0: how about do North and South as well? Sort of have four quarters rather than two halves in because then you you d- you'd eliminate sides like Krasnodar and Rostov in the south. I can see what you're saying about Ural, but at least yeah. you'd split that western part off.
2: You, you could, but, but I still don't think it would be fair, and also think it would be unfair. For example, I don't know if you if you saw any of the cup games. I, when I got home from uh, the Dynamo-Rostov game, I saw uh, Cisca, part of Sisker's game, and while we were waiting in line, I saw part of Spartak's game, and both stadiums were completely packed. I think there were like 13,000, 14,000 in the... Uh, at Spartak's game, and even though they played so far away from Moscow, of course it was bad for Spartak, but it was very obvious it meant a lot to the to the SKA uh, fans. So it, I don't think you can you can uh, you can split the, the the cup up. It's it's so annoying for the teams having to go to to the far east, but I think that's that's just the way it has to be. Otherwise it becomes too uneven. And the most important thing in a cup tournament like this is that it's it's even for everybody and of course, we also like to see these surprises. So I think it's, it, it, it gives us these cup killers like Yenisei and, and SKA this season. So that's that's good. And then every now and then you're lucky. Like Lokomotiv, they throw um, Himke uh, in the northern Moscow. So they didn't have to travel very long. Of course, that's an advantage for them. But I mean, that's the luck of the draw, I think. I I think it would become too uneven and, and unfair towards both the Big, some of the big teams, but also towards the FNL teams, who who can like get the half the budget maybe for the entire season by having a game like Sparta, like uh, we saw this week uh, last week.
0: Well, you say you say it's fair, but I would argue that drawing the Premier League sides away, therefore fielding weakened teams, and also those giant killings, a bit hard to say, but perhaps they're not quite genuine. So why not just do a straight draw rather than having the away sides in there?
2: I think, it, I think it's alright that we have the weakest side at home. Uh, we have the same in Denmark and we have to remember that Spartak didn't send a weak side. They sent all the best players like Quincy Promes, Luis Romulo, Popov, Kompadov. I mean, all these guys, they played the match actually. It was Siska and, and Rostov played weakened teams, very weakened teams. But then again, shouldn't a team at the top of the league have the depth to compete in two, three competitions maybe? I think it's I think it comes down to also the manager and the sporting director having to build up a squad then that have the depth to compete in more than one tournament uh, for, for a big club like these. So I think it's I, th- I I think this is the best format and I think it's it's fair enough that the, the worst team starts at home against these also because just, the just the money they make is so important at this level it can really save some of these
0: clubs. Okay, so Toka, uh, I'm going to be honest, mate, I-, I disagree totally that this <laughs> is the best way forward. Um, <laughs> Andrew, you mentioned something earlier about, well, you mentioned mm. it uh, in writing at least to us, about sort of having the bottom six uh, RPL teams. Is that right? Mm. Mixing with the top
1: six Do you just want to sort of yeah, explain? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I just, I had an idea um, for, for something that would just, it would have two benefits as I see it. Um, I mean, even if okay, let's let's say for a second that we accept that the the round of 32 is going to have um, uh, the the weaker teams at home. Uh, however it's structured, I don't mind. But I think instead of just having all the Premier League teams in at the same stage, perhaps they should seed the top six teams from the Fennell from the previous season. They get through to the round of 32 automatically whereas the bottom six rpl teams have to start in the round before Um, and i say six teams simply because there are four relegation places or relegation playoff places in the top flight so you know it would add just a tiny just a small incentive for teams to you know not just accept you know mid-table mediocrity that want to just keep clear of that You know, the dreaded draw into the round before. I was going to say,
0: Just very quickly, just with that draw into the round before, doesn't that again
1: encourage teams to field the weakened squad and therefore devalue the competition? Well, that's where I would come back to saying um, I I don't think we should have the weak teams guaranteed a home draw Um, because I I honestly think an open draw is the best thing all round because, you know, the token does make a very good point that. For for the full stadiums, um, when a small club gets a Spartak as Zenit at Siskar, um, it is it is a wonderful occasion, and I've I, I've experienced it before. I mentioned seeing Alania. Well, the biggest game for Chumen was um, Zenit when they came three years ago. Um, you know we've got this brand spanking new stadium, um, officially well not really officially, but the club say it's the best stadium in Siberia, holds thirteen thousand people, brand new, and it's Premier League standard. Um, and it's only been full once, and that was when Zanik came to town. Um, 13,000 people packed in there. Um, I have never, and probably never will, see an atmosphere quite like it. Um, and it was, it was a great occasion, and the money must have been pretty useful. But I don't think it's a basis in itself for saying, well, you've, you've, firstly you've got to get through to that round. You know, these um, the Feniel clubs have got to beat other clubs to get there too. Um, so it's not, it can't be put into a business plan of this is how you're going to sustain your club because it's just too unreliable. The nature of a football game, somebody will have to lose. So half the Fennell clubs won't get the benefits of this. But the visit to a Premier League club itself is also an adventure. You know, Men um, <clears throat> fans, uh, That well, there aren't so many of them even at home, um, but for an away game, there, there are so few of them. But the more chance there might be of a trip to, Creature Arena, um, Arena Sisco, whatever it is that, is, that itself has its appeal. Um, and I think perhaps what could be done could be to say for the first round where Fennell and Premier League clubs meet, perhaps the gate receipts must be at least split 50-50 or maybe 75-25 towards the Fennell club. Um, you know, the Premier League clubs get these gates every week in the league, so Losing 50% of their gate is not going to hurt their budget a massive amount, but it will mean a lot to the fanfare clubs. Perhaps that's a you know, a compromise.
0: Would Would you go along with that token? This whole idea of Andrews with the not just the the ticket split there, but also sort of the the top six divide, if you like, from the two leagues.
2: I wouldn't have a problem with waiting to put the, some of the best teams in the, from the Premier League into the tournament. That, that will sure be an advantage if. That would allow them to focus a bit more on the Champions League and the Europa League and all whatever uh, European the competition they're in. But but I, I still think it's, it's important that they play it, that they get the advantages of playing at home because I I maintain my my argument that it's such a big thing for a small city for a small club when you get a visit from one of these major powerhouses, and it's really something people remember for years, especially if you win. And so yeah. I, it sucks for the big team who have to travel thousands of kilometers. But uh, I mean, hopefully next year Spartak will draw someone closer to them, and then they'll have the luck next season. While Lokomotiv might be sent to Vladivostok or something. I th- I, I think we should just leave it to to the luck of the draw, and then let let the small teams have these have these uh, exciting games. Because let's let's face it, it's, it's not very many good. Uh, Good experiences you get when you play in the uh, in the FNL.
0: So just to reiterate, you would keep the RPL clubs away.
2: Yeah, I would. Oh. Uh, but as I said, I can accept if they go in at a at a later stage of the tournament. I wouldn't mind that. But I think it's it's important that we have these um, we have this structure where the worst side starts at home or plays at home.
0: You are, you are swinging me towards you. Andrew, Andrew would you, is toka swinging you with that?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'm in a slightly conflicted position because, you know, I mean, like I said, that's a lower league fan. I, I want to see the big games too. But um, I, I, I still stand by, I think it should be an open draw. Um, but I, to, to help the lowly league clubs, I do think the gate receipts ought to be uh, managed so that the lower league clubs get a greater share in um, because, like I say, it, it won't affect the budget of the of the Premier League clubs that much. Um, yeah, having said that, I, I'm wondering whether we're focusing on the wrong area now. We've discussed it for a few moments, that perhaps it's just the the competition itself. How What else can be done to make the competition in itself actually getting through more worthwhile? I wonder whether more needs to be done to attract a, a wealthier sponsor that can provide greater prize money or... Or I mean, it's, they would never, they would never add a second European place to the finalist of the, you know, the runner-up in the cup. That would be going too far. But um, I think perhaps something else needs to be done to make the cup itself more, more prestigious. Um, well, this comes back to so, what you were saying
0: earlier, Andrew, about those kickoff times. I mean, sponsors are not going to be interested in matches hmm. which are on TV when everyone's at work. So you'd have that's that's the first thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, I think I think you're spot on there. That definitely has to be <clears throat> that definitely has to be um, addressed very quickly. And it's really not that difficult to do. That's that's the that's the point of it. Um, yeah, you know, even if it, an evening game can have appeal. I mean, we've seen the Premier English Premier League this season has has decided to have Friday evening games. And I know some people may oppose them, but I personally am a big fan of Friday evening games as long as it's at the right time. And it appeals to TV audiences. I, you know, we've all got to accept that TV plays a part in it. Well, what TV audience is going to be interested in a lunchtime kickoff? None of them um, sponsors either. So, yeah, I definitely agree with you. That is the first thing that has to change. Um, I think my personal opinion as well about kickoff times in Russian football is that there's just there's, they're all over the place. You, you you really have to check every single week, any division, Premier League included, Um yeah, I don't. Th- I'm not saying we have well, to go. It's, back the t- to... it's the time zones, isn't it, really? On that. Well, I mean, only to an extent. I mean, you know, ural isn't. You know, they, I go and see ural in Premier League a lot, and you know, Tom Tomsk is the furthest east, but you know, after that, it's Yekaterinburg, and you, you know, the kickoff times have ranged from the earliest to the latest, which to me shows a, a slight lack of sense of direction, really. Um, You know, so you'd expect it to be mostly later kickoffs in Yekaterinburg, so that, you know, two hours earlier in Moscow, it would still be a palatable time for fans to watch on TV. But, um, you know, I've been to a a two o'clock kickoff in in Yekaterinburg, 12 o'clock in Moscow, people won't be so interested so early on. Um, So, in terms of the cup, I think perhaps a slightly more, uh, well, just a more educated approach to picking. For example, kickoff times and sponsorship um, and more effort to get fans involved. I think the marketing has um, been fairly dreadful because it's so difficult to know unless you really do go into detail on on kickoff times and the, the websites. They don't they don't broadcast this stuff desperately well. So, yeah, a lot of effort needs to be made there.
0: OK, the only thing I would say with the, the Friday night kickoffs, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty opposed to it anyway in English football, mainly for, from a fan's perspective, the travel times. In Russia, can you imagine the travel times on that?
1: Well, the, the only thing I would say about travel times is it's, it's a completely different kettle of fish travelling to watch football in Russia than it is in England. In England, I do understand it, simply because people would usually expect to go there and come back on the same day or evening. I mean, if you if you were a Spartak fan for this cup game, for example, um, I actually think, I mean, OK, I want the kickoff time to be decent, but in terms of travelling, it makes no difference because no, no way in hell you're going to go all the way to Haberdovsk and, um, you know, a game finishes at 7, get to a train station or airport at 8 o'clock and then go all the way back to Moscow. I mean, if you do, it doesn't it does it doesn't really matter because you're not getting back at a normal time. You'll be getting back at early hours of the morning. Um, you know, and it's the same, same with Premier League games too, really. Um, most fans, other than slightly crazy ones like me driving on the motorway will be flying Um, so it severely limits your accessibility and ability to get back um, on the same day anyway so I mean I should should imagine a lot of fans probably do stay over um, the night in whatever city they're visiting Um, you know we we know that away fans are very few in the Premier League so um, I don't think it's as much of an issue in Russia although the distances are further that's actually what I think makes it less of an issue because They're not expecting to get back home at a reasonable time of the evening. Okay, so now, having gone through the Russian Cup, I'm sorry, Toka,
0: I sort of ignored you for the last five minutes there. You are still there, aren't you? Yeah, of course. Yeah, okay, perfect. We're going to move on to um, an interesting quote, really, by Leonid Slutsky, of course, CSKA manager, former Russia manager, who says that Russia is not a footballing country. Toka, would you say that Russia is a, a footballing country?
2: Well, I think you can call Russia many things, but football country is unfortunately not one of them. Not at the moment. I mean, I attended uh, Siska's game against Krasnodar this weekend, and the stadium was less than half full. I attended the Dynamo match, and the, the same thing was the situation. And I attended Spartak this weekend against Ufa, and the stadium was also less than half full. I don't think you can call Russia football... Football country, so of course, it's a bit of an, an abstract uh, word anyway, but but no, the Russians doesn't really seem to care that much about the, the local teams. It's for example, when I watched, watch went to watch Lokomotiv last weekend, had I not known there was a football game, um, the playing that day, I would never had guessed that you didn't see any people wearing scarf or shirts or anything. It was like it could have been a completely normal day, and had I not been going specifically to watch locomotive, I could almost have walked straight past the stadium without noticing anything.
0: See, what's interesting for me from that perspective, when I've been to St. Petersburg and Zenit, you go on the metro a, a few hours, talking th- up to three hours before kickoff time, you're seeing scarves and shirts everywhere on the metro, on the way to Petrovsky. I mean, a lot of that, the reason it's so early is because you have to get through security lines, which is, uh, I mean, they're a bit ridiculous, about four rows of security, pat-downs and everything. But, so we see the opposite of that in St Petersburg really but Andrew I mean you go to ice hockey matches in in Russia and you see the attendances are just absolute sky high and really I would say the mm. entertainment there is a is a lot more interesting you see a lot of things in between bre- I know there's not so many breaks in playing football but things like even little things like half time entertainment and things could make mm. football a more attractive prospect surely
1: well yeah I mean I'm interested you mentioned ice hockey because um I mean, I'll talk from my personal experience. Literally 100 metres up the road from Tumen's football stadium is the ice hockey stadium. Um, And it's an old crumbling relic of a ground. It's a really interesting contrast. You've got this brand new 13,000 capacity football stadium, which has got its own training pitch and its heated pitch. It's all wonderful facilities. And then you've got this 1960s crumbling Soviet ice rink, which holds about three or four thousand, but is packed out every game. And I'm, I don't know my ice hockey inside out, but I've, I've even on one day been to the ice hockey, walked down the road, literally down the road, 100 metres to the football. And the contrast is just, um, it's out of this world. I mean, the, the effort made just, you mentioned the halftime entertainment. Um, I mean, for kids at the ice hockey, they've always got face painters and entertainers. There's, you know, there's good food and drink on offer. They have dancers and you know, everybody knows the players. You see more merchandise there. Um, I mean, it shouldn't be the centre of everything. But, you know, I I bought a Chumann shirt five years ago. Um, I still wear it to play football now. I was going to say, that that is an antique relic. You could put that on on an antiques roadshow in a few years. It's it's, it's a specialist item. Um, Because I I don't think I have seen a single, apart from on my back and occasionally at the Zanit. Um, Russian Cup game, I don't think I've seen a single Tumen shirt in seven years in this city um, and the the lack of engagement is just astonishing to me, I, I just cannot make it out um, you know, I mean okay, let's just think of basic numbers for a moment, in Tumen there are 800,000 people, now I use Tumen because I live here but the situation will be similar in many other cities in Russia 800,000 people there are only three or four Cities, municipal areas in in England with a bigger a bigger population than that, um, the stadium only holds thirteen thousand, and yet the average attendance is about one one and a half thousand at most, and often it's below one thousand. Um, so, I mean, I, I love this country deeply, and I I do I do love watching the football because there is a lots there are a lot of subplots going on, but the engagement between fans and sport it's just it's just non-existent unfortunately um, and i think the world cup will be a huge huge wake up call for that um, but yeah you know unfortunately again i'm doing my usual thing of being negative on the podcast but that's um, fine it's uh, unfortunately it's the only route i have because it's uh, a football country to me as i understand that phrase no just just very quickly before i ask toka something just going back to what you said a
0: couple of things uh, firstly, please tell me you've got flint on the back of your shirt.
1: I would love to, but I have not found a shirt printing place yet, so <laughs> Well you need yeah, it would be God would be on the back of my shirt.
0: <laughs> you should get you should get denched like your friend Frimpong. <laughs> and the other thing is, you talked about the ice hockey stadium being so close. Oh. Are the well, the kickoff or the, the start times similar and therefore they compete against each other? Or, or is that nothing really to do with it?
1: Well, occasionally they they have um, they do. Off, I know the marketing manager of both. Well, in fact, actually, the marketing media manager of the football club um, is on maternity leave at the moment. So the marketing manager of the hockey club is doing the job for both clubs at the moment. Um, but they always communicate with each other to try and make sure the kickoff times are close but not the same. Because the idea is they want to. They know the hockey will always attract three thousand people. Well, if they're just walking down the road, they can—they—they—they do not even have to necessarily pay to get in because you can see through the fence. But the hope—the idea—is that they will walk past the football stadium and come in. Um, but it's—it's uh, it's, um, it's, its not enough on itself to boost the attendances. But it doesn't often clash, you know. Um, but they—they they do make some effort to coordinate. Now, Toka, I wanted to ask you something else, but
0: actually, I just thought of something off the top of my head with. Andrew and I, it's a bit different because we're in England and football is seen as the number one sport. I'm not sure about how in Denmark, but is there is there a comparable situation at all?
2: I think so. the problem in Denmark is football is by far number one, but people prefer to watch, for example, English football or Spanish football to watch, instead of going to the local Danish games. And I think you could say that's probably also a problem here in Russia. I mean, it's it's difficult to attract people to the stadiums and that is a, a huge part of the problem because I think Russia definitely has the potential to be a football nation among all these other things, also a great ice hockey nation and a great uh, biathlon nation, and all these things. But, I mean, obviously people love football. We've seen that many times before. But so little is being done by the big clubs to attract people. Um, I went to Lokomotiv, as I said, last weekend. And and, uh, since they've gotten a new president, he has realized, okay, we actually have to do something proactive to get people to the stadium because... Very few Russian people go to the stadium without being sort of, you can say, invited or something like that. Uh, So he set up like, it was almost like a festival. They had music, they had games, they had um, pictures taken. And you could do so much things with your family. So it became an alternative to going to the movies or doing whatever people would prefer to do on a Sunday. So. But the clubs are forgetting that they have to do something active to get people to the stadium because otherwise they won't go, especially not in in a big city like Moscow where you have thousands of of opportunities um, to spend your free time. And I think it's very important. For example, Siska, they have done basically nothing since they built the new stadium. I think maybe Gino thought, "Okay, I'll build a new stadium. That's enough. When we get the stadium, then people will come. But that's obviously not the case. You have to make it attractive for people to come, not only with ticket prices, but also but also with, with all the kinds of other stuff. I mean, you need to make it a fun thing for the family. You don't have to fill it with lousy American entertainment like cheerleaders and stuff like that, but you have to make something that does going to the stadium interesting for the whole family and not just the most dedicated ultras who would go any, anyway and stand behind the goal and make make atmosphere. You have to you have to find a way to attract the whole family because I definitely think Russia has the potential to be a football country, but the people in charge at the various clubs and the national team, they just don't know what to do to actually get the country, get the clubs to that level where people will start going to the stadium because it doesn't happen by itself. Um, people don't just decide, hey, I'll go spend uh, four hours watching Lokomotiv lose one note to Ufa in freezing cold. The need to the need to that sounds like <laughs> a
0: great a really attractive <laughs> proposition.
2: <laughs> they need some to go there, and that's why we're also happy to see that. locomotive actually did all these things, and they've already managed to get people to go and watch the and watch the club. They, they have boost their attendances. It's still very low, but people are starting to come to the stadium, and it's these sort of things we need. We need uh, guys thinking outside the box and trying to get people to the stadium and not just saying, oh, well, they don't want to come to the stadium, so what can we do? I mean, you have to try actively to do something for the fans. That's very important.
0: I mean, would you say... I mean, I remember when I first lived in Russia, I used to watch the football on TV on Rassi Edouard, as it was then. And there used to be a lot of English Premier League games. This was before Match TV. Now, since Match TV's come along, there's, it's basically been all Russian football, which you never got before, apart from the odd game on, mm-hmm. like, Canal or something. Would you say that Match TV has improved the situation at all?
1: Um, Well, I mean, I'll I'll, I'll dive in quickly because I watch a lot of Match TV myself. Um, I mean, I've seen a lot of critics of Match TV for the the level of analysis that they have on. Um, I think I'm not as critical as other people are. I mean, I'll give you an example. I was waiting to watch um, uh, Cisco Krasnodar on Match TV. And I was looking forward to my Russian is not perfect, but I can understand enough, and I would be interested to see what they had to say about the game. Um, there was just almost no no analysis, no news, no interviews beforehand. It was sort of five minutes before the game. Effectively, they show a few warm ups, and and that's about it. Um, but what I would say is that the thing the thing about a the the coverage Match TV gives is it's it's very it's very flashy. It's very you know, aesthetically pleasing, if not in-depth, satisfying with the analysis, but I do think that is the first job, is to get the attention, and it, it gets the attention. It shows the big games alongside some of the big Premier League games. I mean, Saturday Saturday was just um, a brilliant day for Match TV. There was, um, Manchester United were on TV first, followed by CSKA, then Chelsea-Arsenal, then Lo- locomotive, um uh, the locomotive match afterwards. So it was a brilliant mix of the Premier League matches which will have you know plenty of attention, you know, spliced in between the, the Russian top flight two. Um, I think for the short term, I think it's actually very good. It needs to get the attention and it does. But in the long term what it needs to do is start developing more match of a day type programs where you know they get more recognizable players on who actually discuss it rather than Seem rather clueless, as as one or two have done. I was going to say um, that. I remember
0: they had um, Zagoyev on a, a couple of years ago. He just didn't know what it, he just, it didn't look like. He wanted to be there really.
1: Well, I, I know it's I different mean,
0: with current players. It's a bit more difficult. you see that in England a lot with current players coming on. It often ends in disaster.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's they they need to be they need to be streetwise with exactly who they actually bring on. Are they presentable on camera? Um, one person, one thing they did do well um, before the before the Chelsea Arsenal game actually was they had Salvatore Buketti on, um, who I, I wasn't aware, but is a fluent Russian speaker. But he was he was getting really animated, and they asked him to do you know perform a few of the chants that the fans sing for him. But they also asked him about the um know, yeah, asking about the games themselves and and the they had a small studio audience and it was sort of sounded like a good little atmosphere and that was the sort of thing I think okay it's not the most in-depth detailed analysis but that's not the sort of analysis that is going to draw fans in and ultimately that's what we want to see isn't it you know we want to see more people engaged. Um so you know you come back to engaging the fans. Um I think improving and I do see it as an improvement for now but it has more work to do in the future improving the broadcast of Russian TV with match TV for example is a good first step um, but in terms of at the games it's a, a lot more needs to be done um, I mean it's it's not like people aren't trying to and um, toka mentions the CSK attendance it was it's just embarrassing to see on TV it, it, it looks a lot it looks like a quarter full from from what I could see but I mean the exact attendance I don't know but um, I mean at the lower league level it's a tough job. Um, I mean Chumen, I was friendly with the marketing manager Anton about two or three years ago and he he, he had a very very low salary um, it was above the minimum wage but not much more and he wasn't allowed to spend a, a single ruble of the club's budget on getting fans in they said you've got to do all of this without any money um, and he had lots of great ideas and he's since gone on to work for in Crimea and he's done a good job there and um, but it's it's a, it's a it's a lack of common sense. Um, TV is a good start, though. So um, I'm just wondering
0: about sort of the youth coming in. So because I remember when I when I was in Russia, I was talking to a student of mine, and he had a young son who he actually played ice hockey instead of football, and went to ice hockey just because a lot of. Um, for example, this bloke didn't like the swearing all around the stadiums and things like that. He said you don't get that ice hockey the thing with ice hockey coaching as well is a is a lot more advanced, so therefore kids are more interested in it. Would you would you say that that's a big part of it?
2: Yeah, of course. I mean, it's it's so important for the club to be able to attract families because I mean that's that's first of all families is where the money are. That's the people who can afford to buy stuff at the stadium, merchandise, food, drinks, all this stuff. But it's also there you find the future of the fans. I mean, you have to attract the young guys because they're the ones who become ultras and families and so on later. And yeah, of course, it's very important to create a family-friendly environment. It's important to have safety at the stadium, to have activities for children, to have something that gets their attention. and And also all these things that you have to get rid of swearing and racism and stuff like this because... That's something that keeps people away. Of course, you don't want to go to a game with your kids if, if you don't feel safe, if you don't feel it's a good environment for your kids. So that's definitely important. You you, you have to make the club look good and be attractive to, to these people because otherwise you'll never get anywhere. Then you can have the nicest stadium in the world. You can almost have the best players. But if the stadium isn't a, a good place to be, people won't come to watch the, the team. And then, then it doesn't really matter... Uh, how good
0: your team are, I think. I mean, just, just very quickly, I wasn't. this is more of a rhetorical thing, really. I'm just thinking about MLS in America. They do a lot of things outside of the game itself because they've got a lot of big sports rivals. And actually, the attendances there aren't too bad. You look at someone like Portland Timbers get a full house pretty much every week. But Andrew, I mean, we, coming back to Slotsky who we started this discussion with, he said he wants a, a salary cap, a foreigner rule player
1: scrapping and limiting club spending.
0: Would you say that that would help, help it boost its
1: profile? Yeah, I, I think it would. Um, I think it's, uh, it's common sense. It's not going to happen, in my opinion. It's just too drastic, the measures. But, um, well, I mean, I'm not saying I think they are, but too drastic to be accepted by Mucco & Co. Yeah, I think, you know, players, yeah, fans like to see exotic players. They do like to see, you know, good Brazilians like Holt come in without being without being dropped i mean hulk himself would never get dropped but the you know they want to see exciting players and you know that's that's one advantage of course the motivation of young russian players people get disenfranchised when they see players like i know Kokorin and mamayev've got a lot of bad press for their champagne party personally i don't think they deserved it i think it's in their own time they can do what they like but it didn't matter that was a damaging um it was a damaging thing that just added to the conception that Russian young players are not motivated, they just want the glamorous lifestyle and, you know, if it didn't perform well, plus that, it it doesn't make for a good bond between, you know, young local fans, young local players. Um, So the scrapping the foreigner limit would would help with that because the young Russian players would be less in demand. Um, The salary cap idea, in principle, I think could work, Um, although then you would also have to accept that it doesn't just affect the motivation of well-played young Russian players, but also the ability to bring in, you know, top foreign players as well. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword, that one. Um, Limiting the club's spending. Well, I mean, that, I just, I would say that should, and it almost, you could argue it is being enforced, the financial fair play. We've seen Dynamo Moscow, for example, and I, I wholeheartedly believe that their relegation, mostly because they had to sell their players and they had money problems because of FFP. I mean, it's the best thing that could have happened to them. I think they'll come up strongly next season and they'll be better prepared for it. So I think Suski's ideas in general are, are good. I think they're the right ones. Um, whether we'll see them enforced, I think it's unlikely, but we can always hope.
0: OK, so we're going to move on to a, a sort of an, another segment now where we ask the listeners for questions. Now, Ilya, of course, is a writer for the site, but he he counts as a listener, and he has asked us because he's a big locomotive fan, of course. He's asked us which locomotive players would get into sort of the top three Russian teams, if you like. So, Toker, have you have you got any ideas on that one?
2: Yeah, I think it's a it's a very interesting question. Unfortunately, I'd love to 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 say a lot of good things to Ilya. I'm meeting him later today. We're going to watch some ice hockey, but when I look at the locomotive's team, I'd say. Kaluka, the center, uh central uh, defender, and then maybe left back uh, Vitali Denisov, and that's that's unfortunately it for me. I don't think any of the other players have the have the level needed to play for Zenit or CSK.
0: You'll be writing a letter of apology to Ilya later. Um, Andrew, would you <laughs> would you add any others into that?
1: Um, I think I think. Alexei Moranchuk could. Uh, I don't think he's quite, he's not the full package yet. Obviously, he's still a young player, but I think he's starting to gain a bit of a bit of cockiness, and he could possibly squeeze his way into, um, uh, I don't know, perhaps perhaps CSK's squad, and whether first choice, I'd, probably not quite yet. I think he and uh, he and Golovin are of a similar level for me, so I don't think Moranchuk is far off. Um, I do agree with Choluka and Denisov as being. Um, the two standout options that could potentially um, make one of the other teams. Um, I mean, a few years ago, and I do mean quite a few years ago, um, had Manuel Fernandes been playing at the level of, you know, five, six years ago, I could I would have said him too. I was a big fan of his, but uh, I don't think he's likely to get anywhere near the team anytime soon. Yeah. And that's just for locomotives. So yeah, I'd possibly add Muranchuk. Um, and, uh, I would almost say Alexander Smirnov, and I've come around to I've warmed up to him more in the last season or two. Um, not a fan. I wasn't. Hmm? I'm not a fan of him. I'll be honest. You're not a fan. No. Wait, wait, what makes you not a fan of Smirnov? Uh, I just think he's a bit predictable. I mean, I, I I see him as a. He's not. He's not the most um, exciting winger, but I do think he is very good at what he does, and his his delivery is is excellent. And if you think that Juba is inside, I'm not saying he would get into Zenit's first team. I know he wouldn't get in the first team straight away, of course not. But he'd be an interesting option to have. Um, I mean, you saw Smolov's goal against Ghana. Um, Samiullah cut in from the right, and he had the vision. He has the intelligence. Um, he slips in a quite a nice little slide rule pass, um, and Smalloff did the rest as he always does. Um, I, I wasn't a fan of his to start with, and for similar reasons that you mentioned, Thomas. But I, I think he has something to offer. Maybe not as first choice, uh, a first choice winger, but certainly it's an interesting option to have. Um, but yeah, I've, that's that's what I'd say. I'd say Muranich, I would add to tokas um, Tokus list, and possibly Sir
0: Okay, so if any of you listeners are sort of agree with these or have any other players to add, do add them into comments or, or tweet us with them, etc comments on facebook and tweets I mean, well you know where tweets are um sort of the last question i'd go to just uh, just a quick one word answer really for, for the both of you i mean i was saying before we came on actually it's a bit difficult this question because you can say well the question is what is the toughest uh, stadium to go to well i'd say you could choose a number if the attendances were better but with the attendances so low some of those stadiums don't really live up to their potential so toka what would you argue is the the toughest stadium for teams to go to
2: I'd say it's the stadium in Grasny playing against Terek. I mean, Terek don't have the most talented squad in Russia, but it's, they're always a tough team to play against. The defense is it works so good together. They are a very organized team, and we almost always see them take points from big sides coming to to Chechnya to, uh, to Grasny to play. So I'd go, i definitely go with Terek as the most difficult place in, in Russia. Also because we have that unpredictable air, uh or maybe Kadyrov will suddenly take the. I was mic- going to say I was hoping to <laughs> mention that and, and, and sell something, but but even, even when that doesn't happen, I I'd go with Tira as the most difficult place to play.
1: Would you go along with that, Andrew? It certainly is one of them. Yeah, I certainly would agree with um, them. Uh, Their the Akramat Arena being up there, I would probably throw into the ring um, Rostov Stadium. I like I like the layout of it because it's sort of it's all very close packed in. Um, and it usually being being a relatively low capacity, I think it's only about sixteen, seventeen thousand, the I think a big part of what's difficult to play, what makes the stadium difficult to play in is how high the you know, how high the percentage of the capacity is filled with fans. So um, you know, the Olympic stadium is usually fairly full and and Rostov seems to play fairly late kickoff time, so the evening atmosphere comes into it. Um you know, and they're always a tough team. Well, I say always. The last season and a bit, they've been a tough team to play against at home. So They won at home yeah, on uh, try... Saturday, of course. <clears throat> yeah. And um, I predicted that they wouldn't, but damn them, they did. Um, but yeah, I'd say Rostov Rostov's Stadium, I'd throw in there. Yeah. Um, I will throw in the least threatening stadium which is without question um, my nearest Premier League stadium which is the SKB Bank Arena um, completely open, um, no atmosphere whatsoever for half the game um, and uh, yeah teams often pick what I at ease but that, I'd add in Rostov to the
0: That's, that's a great thing. Oh, take what
1: would you say is the least threatening?
2: <laughs> you know I, I'm, I'm, this might be controversial but I'll probably say a Arena by Spartak plays right it is a fantastic stadium. Spartak have great fans, but the teams going there—they don't fear it. They know we go to Spartak, and they actually believe they can—they can surprise everybody. And they know as soon as if they maybe keep it drawn until halftime, if they win some tackles, just play well defensively. Sooner, sooner or later, the Spartak fans will start to go against their own team, and as soon as that happens, you almost know that okay, we'll have a have a good game here. So. Yeah, Spartak Stadium is definitely not a scary place to go as an opponent because you actually believe you can get something from visiting them.
0: Would you say that sort of the modern nature of the stadium plays a part in that?
2: No, I think it's it's, um, not at all. I think it has everything to do with the fact that Spartak fans expect so much from the team and that the team usually underperforms and and that the opponents know that. So they know, okay, we face Spartak. Hey, we can actually surprise everybody today. And we believe we can get something from them. It's not like when you go to Senate and you know, oh, we'll probably lose this one. So you believe you can win a Spartak stadium
0: at the moment. Of course, Spartak lost at home at the weekend to Ufa. And now finally, we've got we've got a fun little segment here that we came up with recently, which is only in Russia. So we sort of, sort of quite a comical thing that we see only that you would only see in Russian football and nowhere else. So Andrew, what would your suggestion be for this?
1: <laughs> only in Russian football oh blimey no I'd say only in Russia would you see a player who is being his contract is being investigated by FIFA and the Court of Arbitration of Sports and yet is still allowed to play Moon's um, case which it's just gone quiet that's how things happen here um, so yeah uh, you wouldn't see that happen anywhere else I don't think that is a great shout and uh, Toka, yours?
2: yeah as I, as I said I went to Dinamo uh, last week and after they won the game 4-0 against Rostov, um, they, they set up tons of firework. The club had like, I don't know how many rockets they fired in, into the air, but it was like 4 in the afternoon. All lights, the sun was out, everything. And then they set up tons of firework, filling the sky with nice rockets. I mean, they won an early, early cup round game. They didn't win the championship or promotion or the cup or anything. <laughs> but, I mean, I've never seen anybody celebrate something irrelevant that much before that was that's definitely my only in russia moment that
0: that is perfect i'm gonna go with a similar one which it's sort of similar it's those early kickoff times of two o'clock on a wednesday that is that is just so russia (laughs) just just play the game doesn't matter about anything else just play the game whenever. (laughs) yeah okay so that pretty much brings the end of the podcast i think i'm gonna thank my guests once again being wonderful as
1: always andrew thank you Cheers, thanks for
0: having us on, Thomas. And, Toker, enjoy the rest of your stay in Moscow.
1: Yeah, thank you very much.
0: Good stuff. So, just for the listeners, of course, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud. Uh, Do keep listening every fortnight. Follow us on Twitter at Russ Football News. And then, of course, we've got the Facebook page, Russian Football News. Just search that into the little search bar and you will find us. So, again, thanks for listening and we will see you on the next podcast.
1: Goodbye.